The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Coming up on American POTUS, Martin Van Buren. He just might be the most important president you don't really know that much about. Governor, Senator, Secretary of State, Vice POTUS, and POTUS. This man's resume is long and impressive. After this lifetime of politics working toward the White House, he had the bad luck of dealing with a nasty financial crisis that ended his presidency nearly as soon as it started, getting kicked out after just one term. The man who created the modern-day Democratic Party, the little magician, POTUS number 8, Martin Van Buren. He's on this episode of American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunn. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. By sharing their challenges, their stories, and their personalities, we hope to add some clarity and perspective for today's heated political conversations. We'd like to welcome James Bradley to the show, a guy who knows just about everything there is to know about our eighth POTUS. He's the co-editor of the Martin Van Buren Papers, based out of Cumberland University. And he's wrapping up a biography of Van Buren, due out next year by Oxford University Press. In addition to all of that, he's also a lecturer in the public history program at the State University of New York at Albany. James, you're a busy guy. Thank you for joining us here on American POTUS. Welcome. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. James, I'm really looking forward to learning more about Martin Van Buren. And let, let's start with his, with his youth. Who were his parents and where was he raised? He was raised in Kinderhook, New York, uh, in Columbia County, in the Hudson Valley. It was really an unusual region, not only in New York, but, but really in America. This particular part of New York was an area that was really dominated by the manor lords, the land barons, people with names like Van Rensselaer and Van Cortland and Livingston. They owned enormous tracts of land. The two biggest ones were Rensselaerwick, which is something that goes back to the days of Dutch rule in the, the mid-17th century, and Livingston Manor, which was something that uh, uh, came into being in the, in the later 17th century. Rensselaerwick was one million acres. Uh, and it was owned by the Van Rensselaer family, and it was passed down from generation to generation. And Livingston Manor was, some, was something similar. Uh, it was a little bit smaller. It was 160,000 acres. But it was the same idea that you had these powerful land barons who owned lots of land. They leased them out to tenant farmers. So it was a region where you saw enormous uh, inequality. Now, Van Buren was born and raised in Kinderhook, which was not part of Livingston Manor, not part of Rensselaerwick. Uh, so it was a town of what they call independent freeholds. These people owned their land, they owned their property. And so it had a very different vibe from other parts uh, of, this, of this region of the, of the Hudson Valley. So that sort of made Van Buren somebody who was aware of the vast inequalities that surrounded him, but he really wasn't subjected to it himself. His father was Abraham Van Buren. He was a farmer and a tavern keeper. And this was very significant because being a tavern keeper in revolutionary New York was a a very important uh, occupation. And Abraham Van Buren turned out to be really an important figure in this area because he owned this tavern and it was the Patriots' leading local meeting house. Kinderhook in general was a loyalist stronghold, but the Abraham Van Buren Tavern was was a place where the Patriots would meet and gather. It's where military strategy was planned. He was part of the 7th Regiment. He was was Captain Abraham Van Buren. He probably participated in the Battle of Saratoga. We're not entirely sure of this, but we know that his his uh, regiment did. So it's likely that he did. And the Battle of Saratoga was really a turning point in the American Revolution. When you look at Martin Van Buren and his upbringing and his childhood, you can see 
why he became the brilliant politician that he became. He grew up really immersed in a political atmosphere. His father's tavern was a polling site. People actually came there and voted, not just for uh, town supervisor and things like that, but for congressmen. We have some actual papers at the Van Buren papers saying uh, we will be holding an election at Abraham Van Buren's tavern uh, Saturday morning, 10 a.m., that kind of thing. So it was a place of great, great political activity. We have kinds of anecdotes about uh, James Madison and Thomas Jefferson. They said they spent the night at a tavern in Kinderhook. Was it Van Buren's tavern? It's possible. We don't know. Uh, but we do know that uh, Van Buren grew up in a highly charged political environment. Amid the backdrop of war and revolution in a town that was bitterly divided over the revolution, his father's tavern was a place where meetings were held, where voting took place, even where trials uh, were, were, were taking place because there just weren't enough courtrooms to accommodate all of the uh, legal activity going on at the time. So we know that uh, uh, taverns were frequently a place where uh, trials took place and they kept serving drinks during the trials, by the way, <laughs> in case you're all wondering that. When you, you, when you get a sense of the flavor and the, what was taking place during this period in U.S. history, it's a, it's a fascinating period. And it's not at all surprising that Van Buren would, would, would come out of this politician because, again, this was something that he really grew up immersed in. Well, certainly with that fascinating history and being thrown into politics uh, very, very at a very young age, Van Buren became a successful lawyer. And then he was elected to the New York State Senate and became leader of what was called the Albany Regency. What was that and how did he become its leader? Well, it was a gradual thing. Uh, the Albany Regency came a little bit later. And remember, that that was the term that his enemies used to describe, uh, because Regency has all these connotations of royalty and things like that, which they wanted no part of. But what really took place was in the aftermath of the War of 1812, which was a conflict that Van Buren played a major role in in his capacity as a New York legislator. He was really leading the war effort here in New York. He took a lead role in trying to get conscription bills passed. Uh, he wanted to make sure that everybody participated, uh, not just uh, and those with means could participate as well as those without means. He was part of a famous court-martial trial. One of the big debacles of the War of 1812 was, a, was the siege of Detroit when there was a surrender. The, uh, the leader of that uh, expedition was General William Hull. He was brought on court-martial uh, charges, and Van Buren was the lead prosecutor in a federal court-martial trial. So the war really, really catapulted him. And in the middle of all this, he starts a feud with DeWitt Clinton who was the mayor of New York City, who was one of the powerful figures in New York politics at the time. He was the scion from a great political family in New York. His father was an aide-de-camp to General Washington during the war. His father, I'm sorry, his uncle, George Clinton, was uh, governor of New York, and he was vice president under Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. So he came from this big political family. In Van Buren's eyes, he was a fake Republican. He was someone who was trying to present himself as a Republican to the people, but he was really more of a Federalist at heart. And on top of all that, there was uh, just great personal animosity between them. So his opposition to DeWitt Clinton meant he was putting together the real rudiments of a party. He was trying to, he found like-minded people who, was all, who were also opposed to DeWitt Clinton, and they formed a faction they were called the Bucktails. They were closely tied to Tammany Hall. Tammany Hall members would wear uh, a buck's feather in their cap, and that was the term they came to be called, the Bucktails. And with time, the Bucktails really turned into a political party of their own. And by the 1820s, it turned into something even bigger than that, that they were people who had top positions in the New York government. Van Buren himself, he was a state senator. He was also the attorney general. See, New York politics back then is almost difficult to comprehend because it was a place where people held multiple positions. Many of them were lawyers. 
Conflict of interest really wasn't a term anybody used back then. It was not at all uncommon for people to be holding these multiple positions, getting involved in cases in which they had a real interest. And Van Buren's people really seized control of the New York government. And this was, again, something gradually that that took place. So by 1821, they had enough power in the legislature where he became the U.S. senator and he could go to Washington and he could have his people running the New York government, even though he was not governor and his people were, DeWitt Clinton was the governor, but Van Buren's people found a way to deprive him of all his power by changing the, the state constitution. Uh, so he was brilliant. He was a brilliant tactician. He was a real leader. People gravitated toward him. He was an extraordinary lawyer. So he understood how to challenge things from a legal perspective. And I think he had a just an entirely different understanding of political parties than what existed before then. He felt that a political party has to be more than just a group of like-minded people. He thought this was something that had to be held together, had to have a real organizational structure to it, a real infrastructure. He thought that, that dispensing patronage was a way of earning people's loyalty and was a way of really cementing bonds to the party because you've got people who are not only party activists, but they're holding positions statewide, countywide, municipal offices, from mayor of New York City to the controller, to the secretary of state, to the militia. I mean, he wanted to get the state staffed with people who believed in his philosophy of government, uh, who were opposed to DeWitt Clinton and his philosophy of government. And he just simply took all these principles, which are things that he picked up over the years. Remember, he goes to New York City at a very early age, and he's and he's brought into the world of Aaron Burr. So he was kind of taught by the master about how to do these things. But unlike Burr, Van Buren was disciplined enough where he could find ways of, of holding these coalitions together. So he was a natural leader. People gravitated toward him. Toward him. He had a real extraordinary way of building parties, building coalitions. And this is why he was such a powerful force that people called it the Albany Regency. And while retaining that power, as you said, in 1821, he goes to the U.S. Senate. How did he continue his efforts there, this this, this party-building uh, effort that he started in New York? How did he do that on a national scale? At first, very, very badly. <laughs> he goes to Washington, and he goes there with really one goal in mind, that he wants to do on a national scale what he does uh, in New York. He's still a pretty young man at this stage. He's not even 40 yet. He's 38, 39. Uh, he goes to Washington and uh, he sort of meets lots of people. He uh, ingratiates himself with the inner circle of the U.S. Senate. He looks toward the presidential election of 1824. He gets behind the candidacy of William Harris Crawford. Now, Van Buren does not like the incumbent president, James Monroe, at all. He feels like James Monroe is not a sufficient party man. He feels like he's doing a lot of damage to the Republican Party. This is a period in U.S. history that's comically named the era of good feelings because this idea was there was one party rule in America, and James Monroe was the leading exponent of this by saying that no more factions, no more infighting, we're all Republicans, we're all together in this. And Van Buren just thinks this is a terrible approach because people may call themselves Republicans, but they're not. So Van Buren wants to bring a tried and true Jeffersonian Republican to the presidency. And he sees this person as William H. Crawford, a cabinet member, a former senator from Georgia, born in Virginia, but he was now at that point uh, based in Georgia. So he's in Washington. He's enjoying himself. He's big behind the Crawford campaign, and he misreads something that New Yorkers, even though New York was now the biggest state in the nation, the most powerful state in the nation, it was surpassing Virginia in every way. Nevertheless, New York is constantly playing second fiddle to the South. We keep electing presidents from Virginia. We keep electing vice presidents from New York. And New Yorkers are getting tired of this. So Van Buren badly misreads the electorate back in New York. And there is a huge uh, outcry 
when he endorses Crawford for president because they think people are thinking, wait a minute, we send a New Yorker down there who's going to revolutionize the party system, but we're just continuing what we've all what we've always been doing, electing Southerners. So this is there's this big backlash because Van Buren and his people push through a new constitution that vastly expands expands voting rights for white men in ways we have not seen before in New York. New York up until that time was all about owning property. And if you owned property, you could vote. And if you could vote, well, then you could become somewhat of a participant in the democratic process. New York had very stringent property requirements. And the 1821 convention, they eliminate almost all of these for white men. They raise them for African-American voters. How this this constitutional convention uh, spiraled out of control and got into an, uh, an ugly uh, racial politics is a, is another story and a long story. They, they 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 expand voting rights and then people start saying, "Well, hold on a minute. You expand voting rights to vote for all these offices, but we still can't vote for president of the United States." At that stage, New York was still uh, awarding its electoral votes through the legislature, so. This made Van Buren look bad. There was a big backlash. The election of 1824 goes very badly for him. John Quincy Adams is the victor. New York's electoral votes are divided up. Only a few go to Crawford. And Van Buren looks bad at home. He looks bad in Washington as well. So he realized he's got a lot of work to do to make up for all these blunders that he's made. And he finds out the best way to do this is to get behind Andrew Jackson. And that really sets off the next phase of his life. Uh, He doesn't like Andrew Jackson at first. He is not too crazy about having a military man, an undisciplined military man, someone who really at that stage had not shown great ideological conviction when it came to politics. Van Buren didn't like him the same reason James Madison and Thomas Jefferson didn't like him. They just didn't think he was presidential material. And, they, and, and, and Van Buren thought Crawford was. But he sees right after the election that Jackson was a much more formidable figure than he understood. And he decides that Andrew Jackson is going to be the future of the Republican Party. That uh, in order for this party to get the, the sort of votes it needed to appeal to working class voters, uh, Jackson was the man because you could see what kind of effect he was having on people. And that was a very good political move for Van Buren. In the first Jackson term, he becomes his Secretary of State, and really his closest advisor. Is that is that right? Do they do they then oh, yes. then forge a good personal relationship, or what was that relationship like once the Jackson presidency began? Yes, it was a very very close relationship. Jackson's first two years in office were a mess. It got mired in. The, what they call the Peggy Eaton affair, the petticoat scandal it had to do with his secretary of war and the cabinet didn't like the woman he was married to. And they various wives of the cabinet members would not welcome her into Washington society. And this made Jackson furious. And Martin Van Buren is a widower. And he, furthermore, he's got four sons. He's got no daughters. So he really feels like he's free. There is no one putting any pressure on him to snub uh, Margaret Eaton. And furthermore, he doesn't really care. He doesn't care that she was a barmaid and that uh, she got married within a year of her of her husband's death. He doesn't. He's not bothered by these things. Whereas John C. Calhoun's wife, Florida, very much is. So when when Jackson's elected president and Van Buren plays a major role in helping getting him elected president. Uh, right away, there's infighting going on between who is going to be Jackson's key figure in the administration and who is going to be his successor. And a lot of people think it's going to be John Calhoun, but, ja- but Calhoun has this major falling out with Jackson over the Eaton affair. And while all this is going on, Jackson and Van Buren become much closer. They go on daily horseback rides. They do a lot of socializing. Uh, they really connected because they were they were both widowers. Now, Jackson was a very recent widower, and he was quite devastated about uh, losing his wife, which happened in December of, of, of 1828. And he finds that 
everybody thinks Andrew Jackson and Martin Van Buren are as different as night and day, and they're, they're certainly different in many respects. But Jackson takes a real liking to him. He says, what's all this talk about him being a slippery politician? I find him to be straightforward and admirable. They go horseback riding. They go hunting a lot. Uh, they enjoy the outdoors. So they, they, they forge a very close friendship. And Jackson finds out that Van Buren really compliments him, that he, I guess you would say, he kind of tames Jackson's you know, wilder impulses. Jackson was someone known for having a great temper and Van Buren would calm him down. He would assist him during diplomatic dinners and things like that. So, uh, because a lot of these diplomats thought that the United States elected a madman in Andrew Jackson, just the, 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 the press coverage of him by the opposition was so negative about the dueling and the fights and the brawls and, and, and what took place during the, the first Seminole war and the execution of the British, British officers uh, that, that Van Buren realized that he had to change Jackson's image to the world. So he sets up uh, a lot of these dinners with uh, ambassadors and other foreign dignitaries and they all find Jackson to be very congenial and pleasant, and and and, and Van Buren really helps him with that. And Jackson, on the other hand, says to Van Buren, who is a very careful, cautious, plotting, methodical politician, teaches him a little bit about how he needs to show some fangs uh, a little bit more. So they complemented and balanced each other very well, and it was a very strong friendship. It was easily the closest president-vice president relationship in the 19th century and probably even the, for most of the 20th century too. Vice presidents were not major figures in the in, in the White House for, for much of American history. I know I'm getting ahead of myself by getting into the vice presidency, but the whole point was their relationship is something that was brought on to whole new levels. And it was, it was quite close. And you can see with the closeness of that relationship, then in that second term, uh, Van Buren steps into the, the vice presidential role that that Calhoun had 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 in in the first term. What how did how did Van Buren approach the vice presidency? What what did he focus on? What did Jackson want him to focus on? Remember, the vice president's responsibilities, as laid out in the Constitution, are pretty minimal. You preside over the Senate. You break ties. <laughs> That's about it. Uh, nowadays, they attend lots of funerals. That wasn't the case back then. Jackson expected Van Buren to, to continue as his advisor. But much had changed. A lot has happened between Van Buren's tenure as Secretary of State and then uh, his vice president. He leaves the cabinet and goes off to be minister to Great Britain. And Calhoun and Henry Clay orchestrate Van Buren's defeat, because the minister to Great Britain is someone who's got to be confirmed by the Senate. The Senate always rubber stamps these kinds of things, but Van Buren is not your ordinary candidate for 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 a minister ministership. So they orchestrate the vote in the Senate to be a tie, and in the process, the confirmation hearings, which Van Buren is not present for, because he's already off in England. It was a recess appointment, but then uh, when the Senate was back in the session. They took upon the uh, the vote to confirm him. That's when they have the confirmation hearings. And Henry Clay organizes his allies in the Senate to really disparage Van Buren during his conduct when he was Secretary of State. And in particular, there's this issue about how proper it was for a Secretary of State to say something like, okay, there's a new administration now. Pay no attention to the previous administration. They really thought that you don't bring up politics when you're dealing with diplomacy in other nations. This becomes an explosive issue during the confirmation. They arrange it so it is a tie. And they do this deliberately for one reason, because who breaks the tie? The vice president. Who was the vice president? John Calhoun. John Calhoun casts the deciding vote against Van Buren. Van Buren has to return to the United States. They think that this is going to be a huge blow to Van Buren's reputation. They really think no man can survive the onslaught of a failed confirmation hearings during which so many senators disparaged him and said he was unqualified to for, for office. 
the whole thing backfires on them. Instead of making Van Buren look bad, what they did came off as petty. And the, many people thought, you know, Jackson can appoint whoever he wants to be minister to Great Britain. Uh, it looked bad. And they made Van Buren out to be a martyr. So Van Buren has to come all the way back to the United States. And uh, when he gets here, there's this suddenly uh, surge in interest in making him vice president and really setting him up to be Jackson's successor. It's a good example, this whole imbroglio during Jackson's term about how all the backstabbing going on, all of the behind the scenes machinations, how Van Buren in these years really learned how to come out on top of these things. This is why he got all those nicknames for being wily and, and whatnot. But it was really a case of his enemies making blunders and Van Buren understanding how to how to take advantage of them. And I think this is one of the, the best examples of that. So he goes to the uh, back to Washington. Andrew Jackson is uh, reelected president in 1832. Van Buren is the vice president. And Van Buren now understands that he's in line to be president. So he's really devoting these four years towards a delicate balancing act of serving the president while at the same time not trying to upset his chances of being elected president in 1836. It's a delicate balancing act because Jackson's second term is a very stormy one. You've got nullification. You've got the force bill. You've got the bank war. You've got the controversy about the deposits. And in every one of these, Van Buren is urging the president to take a more cautious approach. And while Van Buren is gone in England, he starts to move toward people like Amos Kendall, a part of his administration, people who were kind of, instead of urging caution, urging him to, to really fight more. And uh, Andrew Jackson loved a good fight. So I wouldn't say Van Buren was on the outs with Jackson, but things cool off a little bit uh, between them. And Jackson really feels like at this stage in U.S. history, we don't need caution. We need a president who's going to fight for the American people. So it was a bit of a rocky tenure, the second term, but certainly Van Buren stood by Jackson's side. He kept quiet in his misgivings about the way Jackson went about some things. And Jackson, even though he was probably a little annoyed that Van Buren wasn't uh, as belligerent as he wanted him to be, was still very much interested in making Van Buren his successor when 1836 came around. Now, we know that Van Buren often is credited with helping create the modern political party structure. You talked about his efforts in New York. What's he doing during this eight years of the Jackson presence? He's, is he helping build up a party structure at that time? Oh, yes, very much. Van Buren has built this powerful political machine in New York. You can't really build a machine nationwide, but you can build a party. And Van Buren was very good at picking up things going on around the country. He was good at putting together an organization, the institutional structure to make a political party work. And he brought some new tactics to the way campaigns were done, to the way they were conducted, that I think really changed the way American politics uh, was, 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 was undertaken in U.S. history. The Republicans are increasingly called the Democrats. So it's, it turns into what's known as the Jacksonian Democratic Party. And uh, Van Buren was one of several people who were involved. I mean, Jackson had his inner circle, and it was all about trying to put together uh, the means and the organization to help get him elected president. And he want, but he wanted to make sure of something, that the party wasn't just centered around one person, that it was built around principles, held together with patronage, that it was something that was defined through party conventions, through platforms and things like that. That had never been done before. Now this is all very common, but these were new things uh, that really came to fruition in the 1830s. And Van Buren was, was, a, was a key part of all of that. Well, with Jackson's endorsement, as you said, Van Buren wins the presidency in 1836 and immediately had to confront the economic panic of 1837. So can you tell us what were the causes and effects of that panic and what did the president try to do to address them? 
Oh, the panic of 1837. You know, this is the part where we put your entire audience to sleep. I hope you understand that. You want me to talk about the bank war and the species circular and Great Britain raising the interest rates and cutting back on credit and the land bubble and the sharp decline in cotton prices and the speculative lending in in, uh, paper money that was taking place out in the West done there you go <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's, you know it's it, it was quite uh the confluence of, mm-hmm. uh, of events going on it was quite a severe downturn right i mean uh, really uh, quite severe not as bad as the great depression but a very bad economic downturn i think you can make a strong case that it was the second worst depression in in, in u.s history and there was no bank of the united states to bail anybody out Banking was deregulated to the point where, uh, you know, it was just the state banks. The state banks had their own paper money system. They had their own policies. And when the economy collapsed, when there was massive unemployment, when we had all these bank runs of people trying to get their money out of the banks and the banks had to suspend specie payments and they had to close their doors, uh, this was something the the American economy never saw before. So, I mean, they called it a panic for a reason. People were genuinely panicking in the streets. Van Buren was in a terrible bind because of his many skills, and he did have many political skills, being uh, economics was just not one of them. It was just not something he was passionate about. He was a very wealthy man. He was not only wealthy from all of his years as a successful lawyer, but he was very good and learning about land deals, about foreclosures, buying land at cheap prices, selling them at much better prices, just the classic speculation that he engaged in that made him a very wealthy man. But that doesn't mean that gave him a a broader understanding of the the means of the American economy and, and how it worked. So there was this devastating economic depression. The question was, what should the party do about this? Now, The Whig Party was just starting at the time, and the Whig Party was all about the American system. Henry Clay and his American system and his program for building roads and bridges and canals, which, of course, sounds a lot like something more of a New Deal approach to dealing with uh, uh, economic downturns. The idea of stimulating the economy through public works, we didn't really have that kind of Keynesian understanding of the economy then as, as... as, as we do now. So Van Buren is, is in this position where he's trying to address the crisis, but to do it in a way where he is not uh, doing anything counter to the Democratic Party and its principles. He decides to keep in place a very controversial measure. It's called the Species Circular. It's got to do with buying federal lands. You can only do it with specie, with coins, no paper money. This is something that a lot of people, including many Democrats, think uh, was a bad policy that should have been should have been abandoned. But Van Buren decides to stick with it because Andrew Jackson really is the face of the Democratic Party right now. And he felt like it would have been foolish to do something that would have so upended what the party had been standing for in the past few years. So he comes up with something of his own, though, which which they call the the independent treasury. It's this idea of divorcing banking from the government altogether, that it would not be the state banking system. We're not going to have uh, the Bank of the United States, which was the nation's central bank, but it was still a private bank that still appealed to shareholders. But there was so much mingling between public and private investment that it became this huge bugbear for Andrew Jackson and the Jacksonians. And uh, there was never going to be anything like the Bank of the United States again. Uh, So Van Buren comes up with the independent treasury, which he looks at as kind of a middle ground, but it, it doesn't do anything to address the economic hardships that the country's facing at the moment. So he ends up having a pretty miserable presidency. And the panic is, is the major cause for that. Speaking of Andrew Jackson and his continued influence, did Van Buren continue Jackson's policies, removal policies regarding Native Americans? Yes. Yes, very much so. You know, Van Buren's administration is often referred to as the third term, which is an expression I don't like very much. I think uh, Van Buren really did want to move away from 
Jackson, certainly Jackson's style, his slash and burn style is something he wanted to move away from. Foreign policy under uh, Martin Van Buren's administration uh, was was very different from the way it was done under Andrew Jackson. But when it comes to the Indian Removal Act, uh, which is something that Van Buren had some role in passing, it passed the Congress in, in 1830 and became law. Uh, so when, Jack, when Van Buren becomes president, it's still ongoing. There's still the mass expulsion of Native peoples from the Southeast. The Trail of Tears takes place under Van Buren's watch. The Second Seminole War, which began in 1835, uh, continued throughout uh, Van Buren's presidency. You know, a long, bloody, contracted uh, battle, the Second Seminole War. That was something that really drained the resources of the U.S. government at a time when it, it was struggling to begin with. So that was a costly affair. The, uh, the removal of the Cherokees and the Creeks from Georgia and parts of Alabama and Tennessee to, uh, to, to finish, complete the job of what began under Andrew Jackson. Uh, I don't think Van Buren was as hardline about this. I mean, Jackson really felt like this was something central to his administration. Van Buren felt like it was his duty to carry it out. And he did believe that he was doing something in the best interest of the native peoples of the area. It was not, we do not think this way today, and for good reason, we can see the effects of the Indian Removal Act. But we see in, in some of Van Buren's writings that uh, he really thought that this was something that was going to be in the best interest of the Indians, and that turned out not to be the case. There's a, there's a fascinating story he tells in his autobiography of when uh, he is campaigning as much as people could campaign back then in the 1832 election. Jackson's running for re-election, and there's real concern that there is a growing evangelical movement in Western New York, and they're really mobilizing in opposition to Jackson's removal policies. So Van Buren goes out to Western New York, and he meets with people to try to make sure that New York stays safely for Jackson, which it ends up doing. And he describes a scene one night when he spends the night with a niece of his, someone he was very close with. Her name was Christina Cantine. And she is someone very involved in the evangelical movement out there. And he spends the night at her house. And he's in bed one night. He's in his bed in his, in his, in his pajamas. And she knocks on his door and she lets him have it, telling, her, <laughs> telling him how much she dislikes what what the administration is doing with the native peoples. And Van Buren's trying to say, uh, we're moving them to a better place where a rich area, rich in resources, where there will be no conflicts with white settlers. He's trying to make that, that argument that Democrats made at the time. And then she says to him, uncle, I hope you lose this election because people who push for policies like these deserve to lose. He understood that it was controversial, but he very much carried out with Jackson and other Democrats had started. Well, after that difficult presidency, that difficult four years, he loses in 1840 to William Henry Harrison. And he, he tried again in 1844 to get the Democratic nomination, but he was unsuccessful. Why did he fall short there in 1844 for that nomination? One word, Texas. There you go. It's interesting how this whole thing uh, played out. When Van Buren lost in 1841, uh, he pretty much retired from politics. He, a lot of people want him to run again in 1844 because they still consider him the leader of the party. But he just says, nope, not interested. He returns to Kinderhook. He uh, buys this grand house hundreds of acres, and he makes it a real project of his. He calls the house Lindenwald. He's really following in this tradition of presidents going back to their, their beautiful estates and uh, living the life of a country gentleman. We all know what happens. Harrison dies one month into office. John Tyler is president. John Tyler really isn't much of a Whig. He's more of a Democrat. Constant fighting between Tyler and the Whigs. Tyler is not going to be president again in 1844. So the nomination is wide open. And Van Buren goes on a tour of the country. He goes down to the south, down to the west. He goes to the Great Lakes region. He meets with people from all over the country. He has this triumphant tour. 
He gets glowing newspaper coverage. He meets Abraham Lincoln when he reaches, says, Springfield, Illinois, and they have a celebrated night together sharing stories and laughing and whatnot. And when he comes back uh, from his tour, he's widely thought of as the Democratic frontrunner. I mean, no one even thinks anyone's got a shot. He's really the presumptive nominee to get the nomination in 1844. But he's still bitter enemies with John C. Calhoun. John Tyler is Secretary of State because John Tyler, he realizes he's not going to be reelected again. So he embarks on a controversial plan, which is something that was close to his heart, the annexation of Texas. So his Secretary of State negotiates kind of secretly with, with Mexican officials about trying to bring Texas into the Union. When he dies in an accident, this explosion off a, uh, of a, off a frigate called the Princeton, a cannon explodes, half of Tyler's cabinet is killed. One of them is the Secretary of State. Tyler makes as his Secretary of State, John Calhoun. And Calhoun is realizing, okay, I get to kill two birds with one stone here right now. I get to try to negotiate a treaty to bring Texas into the Union. And at the same time, I get to make life very difficult for Martin Van Buren because Van Buren has always been opposed to the annexation of Texas. He's not opposed to it thoroughly, but he does not want to do it in any way that would involve war, in any way that would involve conquest. And of course, he's really worried about upsetting upsetting, uh, uh, the balance between free states and slave states. So they arrange it so a congressman from Mississippi named William Henry Hammett uh, sends Van Buren a letter saying, where exactly do you stand on Texas? Do you want to make Texas part of America, yes or no? And Van Buren writes a gargantuan letter, 10,000 words. It's published in the Washington Globe and is reprinted in newspapers everywhere, where he comes out and he's against uh, annexation of Texas. It's printed on the same day where Henry Clay who is going to be the Whigs nominee for president in 1844, he too comes out against the annexation of Texas. But everybody expects that. We know the Whigs are opposed to this. The Democrats are divided on this subject. A lot of Southerners are in favor. A lot of Northerners are not. So the party is badly split on the issue of Texas. They go to the convention in 1844. It's held in Baltimore. And the Democrats had a procedure that had been in place for since 1832, which was you need to get the support of two-thirds of the delegates to be to get the, the nomination. But in all the previous elections, the nominee was never in doubt. Okay, they knew it was going to be uh, Jackson in 32. They knew it would be Van Buren in 36 and Van Buren again in 1840. Now things are more contentious and they find out they don't have the votes there. His people fight for his nomination, but he just can't get to two-thirds. So the support for Van Buren dissipates, and at that time, a new candidate emerges, James K. Polk, who is known as Young Hickory, Tennessee politician, former Speaker of the House, someone with long, long ties to Andrew Jackson. And finally, the Democrats, who were very upset about Van Buren not getting the nomination, decide, okay... We can go with Polk. He's not ideal, but at least he didn't orchestrate this sneaky uh, attack on our man to deny him the the nomination. So a very contentious uh, convention in Baltimore in 1844. Polk gets the nomination, and it's all over Texas. Polk wins, and of course, he becomes, he really profoundly changes the Democratic Party, that it really turns into a party of national expansion. And we see how much the nation grows after the Mexican War and the acquisition of Oregon. Uh, It's a very different presidency. And Van Buren was somebody who was never comfortable with this sort of ideology, and he got left behind in the process. He still hopes to reenter the political world, though. In 1848, he's the nominee of a new party called the Free Soil Party, which which opposed the extension of slavery. What had been his views on slavery up to that point? And did he think he had any real hope in 48 of of attaining the presidency again? Van Buren came from a slaveholding family. He was the only Northern president to come from a slaveholding family. His family had six slaves during his uh, 
in his youth. He seems to have briefly owned a slave himself. It's the, the, the record is a little bit murky on that, but we do have a letter where, where someone says to him, I found a runaway slave who once belonged to you named Tom. We have found some documents as part of our work in the Van Buren papers, in the father's will about uh, family slaves and who gets them. People thought Van Buren got them, but they went to his brother instead. So Van Buren certainly grows up in a slaveholding environment. When he goes to the state Senate, he votes for the abolition of slavery in New York. But that was a widely held position at the time. His position on uh, civil rights and slavery is, 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 is not a good one from any kind of contemporary perspective. He is somebody who is opposed to, to slavery on principle, but it's certainly never a powerful cause for him at all. Not when he's a senator, not when he's uh, secretary of state or vice president. And when he becomes president... Slavery is really becoming uh, a major part of the U.S. Uh, political dialogue going on at the time between the gag rule, the ab- of not allowing slavery petitions to be read in Congress, to having uh, the post office actually intercept abolitionist literature. Uh, Van Buren is the first president to even mention slavery in his inaugural address which no president had ever had ever done before. So Van Buren is also in favor of allowing slavery in the District of Columbia. So from his perspective, he's trying to keep the nation from descending into civil war. That was always his position, that he was trying to find a way to let slavery gradually uh, wither away the way it did in New York. It, it took a while, but New York... Uh, abolished slavery for good on July 4th, 1827. Van Buren thought nationwide something like that could happen, but we could see that it wasn't. And he discovers when he loses that nomination in 1844, how Texas and slavery, how powerfully intertwined these issues were. Van Buren really saw the Democratic Party as turning into the party of slavery. So he throws in his lot with the Free Soilers, they were somewhat mirroring the debates that were going on in New York at the time. New York was Democratic Party was divided over not just the issue of slavery, but longstanding issues about internal development, taxes, canals, and, and railroads, and, and how to fund them. Van Buren throws in his lot with, with one wing of the party. Uh, they are called the Radicals. There's another wing called the uh, the, the Conservatives. And this division takes place on a greater scale nationwide in the aftermath of the Mexican War, when the issue of are we going to allow slavery in all of this new territory acquired in the Mexican War? And there's something called the Wilmot Proviso, congressman from Pennsylvania named David Wilmot, who says, no, there cannot be any slavery uh, brought into these areas. Van Buren gets behind this. And the Free Soilers decide this is great for our cause to have a famous person running for president under our banner. And Van Buren agrees to this. He doesn't like the party, the direction the Democrats are going in. His son, John Van Buren, who he thinks is going to be a major political figure one day, is attached to the Free Soil Party. So he sees this as a way of not only pushing for an issue, but also to promote the candidacy and the political future of his son, John, which, which does not come to pass. So these are the reasons why the Free Soil Party is, is not an abolitionist party. We need to be clear about that. And in many ways, their opposition to slavery uh, had a white supremacist overtone to it, that there was this belief that broadening slavery was going to lower wages for the white working man in the North. So... Even though there was a merging between the Free Soilers and the Liberty Party, and the Liberty Party was a bit of a, an abolitionist party, they didn't quite go that far, but they were certainly more in that tradition than the Free Soilers. Their reasons for getting behind the spread of slavery were, I guess you would say, not as noble as as the abolitionists or what we might think, people who had a genuine moral opposition to having human beings as chattel. Van Buren, it was more of, a, of an economic argument and promoting his son's political future. But still, it was a big deal 
that Van Buren abandoned the party that he helped create to to run for president on uh, an alternative party, a third party, the Free Soilers. And they, Van Buren did not win a single state in 1848, but he certainly made enough trouble for the Democrat, someone he didn't like named Lewis Cass, the Democrat from Maine, uh, the Whig, uh, Zachary Taylor was elected president in, in 1848. So they certainly had a big effect on the election that year. What did what did Van Buren do after that defeat in forty eight? What what was the rest of his life like? He retired for good. Uh, at that point, he was sixty six, sixty seven. So his health was quite good, but he was certainly no longer a young man. And he decided he had enough of politics. He had been in the thick of U.S. politics now for twenty five, thirty years. He had obviously reached the height of politics in America, but he had lost in 1840. He lost in 1844. He lost in 1848. He was still very, very bitter. He was bitter about losing the 1840 election. He thought the economic depression was pinned unfairly on him. He thought he had the right policies for 1844. He thought the Democratic Party went in a very bad direction. He felt that people did not appreciate what he did. So he spends his life, the rest of his life, living in Kinderhook. Once again, the life of a successful country gentleman, gentleman farmer. Money's not an issue. He was always good at, 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 at saving money and investing money. He's running uh, businesses and operations on his, on his uh, estate. He's bringing in revenue. So he's, he's always good at these things. But he's got to deal with some personal problems, uh, again, bitterness of losing the election. He's also got to deal with his son, Martin Van Buren Jr., who is very sickly at this stage. He had contracted tuberculosis. Uh, The two of them go to Europe. They go to Italy. Van Buren thinks subjecting him to the warm Italian air will do him good. This is what a lot of people thought back then. And it was successful for a while, but he dies in, in 1855. Otherwise, Van Buren does what is very common now, but it was a novelty in the 19th century. He wrote his memoirs. He wrote his autobiography. He didn't finish it. In fact, it does not even get up to his presidency. It's not published until 1920, and it's a mess. It is an absolutely (laughs) unreadable mess. Take it from a guy who's been reading this book every day now for 10 years. Uh, Not cover to cover, but I've been going through it enough that, uh, oh, it's just hard to follow. He's long-winded. He violates every rule of good writing. He's unclear. He's not direct. The pacing of the book is, is, is difficult to follow. So it's a valuable book. So much more could have been it could have been done of it though. Uh, and obviously he got tired of it because he just abandons it one day and he writes another book about a subject that's more important to him, the growth of political parties, the idea of, a, of political parties and their their expansion and how important parties are to free governments. Uh, that's a book that's published a few years after he dies. It's a much more successful book in my view. So He's back to Lindenwald. He's a farmer. He's a writer. He sees his family. He writes letters. He entertains visitors. But the Democratic Party continues to work kowtowing to Southern interests. Franklin Pierce, James Buchanan, disastrous presidencies. The nation heads into civil war. Van Buren supports Lincoln, and he dies in July of 1862. He's a few months shy of his 80th birthday. At the time, the war was going badly. Lincoln gets the news when the cabinet is meeting and talking about the Emancipation Proclamation, and they are planning for the Battle of Antietam. So there's this wonderful arc to Van Buren's life, that he is born at the dawn of the American Revolution, and he dies when the nation is is mired in civil war. And he's unsure of of where this war is going to go. And in between, he plays a central role in so many of the issues that lead up to the Civil War. (music) 
All right, James, I have a couple quick questions. Let's start off with, I mean, his side whiskers. Those things were spectacular. <laughs> they really were. What kind, of, what kind of president was he with his grooming and his clothes? Was he more fine-tuned like Chester Arthur or a bit wrinkled like Abe Lincoln? Oh, well, he was certainly more Chester Arthur okay. than Lincoln. Van Buren had money. He liked the finer things in life. Uh, he liked fine wines. He liked good china. Even his toilet seat was made of China. This was a big controversial campaign issue at the time. Uh, I don't know what Freud would think about people talking about a president's toilet, but he had indoor plumbing. He had a Chinese uh, toilet seat made of China, and he was known for dressing well. When he becomes president, he tones it down a bit. I pulled something out for you guys here in preparation for our talk. In 1828, this is during the uh, the campaign for Andrew Jackson, Van Buren goes to attend church in Rochester, New York, and uh, someone is there who takes note of what he's wearing. And here's how it's described. It's talking about Van Buren now. He wore an elegant snuff-colored broadcloth coat with velvet collar to match. His cravat was orange-tinted silk with modest lace tips. His vest was of pearl hue. His trousers were white duck. His silk hose corresponded to his vest. His shoes were Morocco. His nicely fitting gloves were yellow kid. His hat, a long-furred beaver with broad brim, was of Quaker color. I didn't know Quaker was yeah. a color. But, <laughs> or snuff. Um, I didn't know you snuff get the was point. a color either. Yeah, right? He was a snazzy dresser. But he becomes president and he thinks, all right, I've got to tone this down a little bit. So he kind of wears more simple black suits that he thinks is more befitting of a president. But he continues to host lavish parties, not only when he was president, but afterwards. Yeah, he grew okay. up not... Poverty is a bit strong, but certainly his, his origins were very modest. And once he acquired wealth and power, he uh, made sure that uh, those days would hey, never return. Nothing wrong with that. All right. I love a good nickname, and Marty had some doozies. Let's go through a couple. The Master Spirit, Martin Van Ruin, the Mistletoe Politician, the Little Magician, and one that is sort of still being used today, Old Kinderhook. James, are you okay with explaining old Kinderhook for us? <laughs> I've never even heard of a few of these. Where did you, the, the mistletoe politician? I never heard of that. Was he kissing people around? Or... It's actually an interesting story behind all of these nicknames. By the way, you called him Marty. I know you're kidding. Uh, a lot of people do that. He wasn't actually called Marty. His nickname was Matt. Matt. Okay. And Matty. Ah. Yeah, you think of that as something more affiliated mm. with Matthew, but yeah. nope. He was Matt okay. Van Buren to his friends mm. and Matty. Good to know. This was the age when politicians had nicknames. What was Andrew Jackson? Old Hickory. Henry Clay, the great compromiser. John Quincy Adams, old man eloquent. Even John C. Calhoun was called the was it the cast steel man? All right, comparing you to metal may not be the nicest thing to say about somebody, <laughs> but the idea was these were nicknames laced with affection and respect. Okay, and what's Van Buren called? The little magician. What was he called? The the fox, the red fox of Kinderhook. All of these things. He's constantly disparaged for his height or lack thereof. He was five foot six. All right, short, but the average American male in this time was five eight. So it's not like everybody towered over him. And I mean, you think about so many politicians were five foot seven. John Adams, John Quincy Adams, Alexander Hamilton was five seven. Aaron Burr was five seven. And they're only a little bit taller than Van Buren. And yet Van Buren is being derided for being a shrimp to everybody. <laughs> And of course, Van Buren towered over James Madison, who was Madison five foot three, something like that. So he's called little, and this goes way back to his early days as a as a lawyer. And he's called the magician, as if he's in league with sorcery or something like that. And he's accomplished his success through skullduggery and tricks and things like that. These things bothered him. 
very much. There was only one nickname that he liked. And you already mentioned it, Old Kinderhook. And we all know what, what that became. Should we, should we get into a little bit of the OK phenomenon? There are linguists, OK, who have devoted their lives towards studying this term, OK, and how it has become the global phenomenon. I don't remember the statistic, but it's something like people say it around the world 30 billion times a day, something like that. It's said in every country in the world, every language. It just rolls off the tongue easily. Okay. Where did it start? It probably did not start with Van Buren. We should say that right now. It seems to have started with a satirical piece in a Boston newspaper where someone was making fun of Americans and how badly they spelled words. Okay. And the joke was all correct, all was spelled with an O. And it should have been spelled with an A. And correct should have been spelled with a C. Well, should have been spelled with a C, but people were spelling it with a K. So all correct became OK. That's probably where it started. But Van Buren is someone who really pushed this to a whole new level. And this is something that's very representative of the campaign frenzy at the time. That was the election of 1840, which is something even school kids today heard of, Tippecanoe and Tyler too. There was this campaign of, uh, of Jackson, of, of Van Buren running against uh, William Henry Harrison with slogans, parades, songs, and it was used in their campaign literature. There were clubs called the OK Club, I'm OK, I'm with Van Buren. It was that sort of code that people were using back then. So these things really became part of the American vernacular. And now it's it's spread to the world. I love it. I love it. Uh, James, we're, we're running a little short on time, but before we go, I want to ask you why you think it's so important for us today to still hear stories about a president such as Van Buren. What can we learn from his presidency? I think the most important thing about Van Buren is not so much his presidency, which was a troubled and difficult four years. I, I think... If we, if we want to understand about how political parties have become so inseparable from our politics, and this is something people still have difficulty understanding and are a bit befuddled by, you know, every time we have an election every four years, and then there are the, the primaries and these conventions, and we hear about these parties and their elaborate set of rules about delegates and what they can do and what they can't do, it really goes back to Van Buren. It started with him because he said a political party is not supposed to be a bunch of like-minded people who agree on a couple of principles. It's got to be something more than that. It's got to be really entrenched. It's got to be something inseparable from our political system. Political parties are not mentioned in the Constitution at all. There's no reason why we all can't throw them out tomorrow. And people say this all the time, and people think, wouldn't it be nice if we didn't have Democrats and Republicans bickering all the time? And Van Buren said to this, people are going to bicker no matter what. You can say we're all part of one country, we all get along, but the fact is people, given who they are, given, given what they are, are, are naturally going to gravitate toward the idea of coalescing with like-minded people, organizing, building coalitions trying to foster and harness the energy in their communities and try to expand it to a larger level and to do it through a political means. Everybody understands that the way to get things done is through organizing. And Van Buren saw political parties as the great organizing tool in American life. So the purpose of my book, my biography, is showing how this all came about. How Van Buren, who is part of this world, this strange uh, world in the 18th century where you had land barons, the manor lords, these people who owned territory, people couldn't vote, some could vote, some couldn't, and how Van Buren tried to break down these barriers and tried to find ways of getting people involved in the democratic process so there wouldn't be such a heavy concentration of power in people with money uh, and, and means and influence. So when you study his life, you get to learn about how this whole process developed and played such a central role in creating our country. Well said, well said. When when does the biography come out? When do you expect it well, to hit the stands? I am, 
I've set a goal for myself, which I'm going to reveal to the world right now through your <laughs> podcast. Oh, so yeah. I'm putting pressure on myself. Sure. I'm, I'm going to get this done at Labor Day if it kills me. Um, <laughs> and it just might. Uh, but I'm trying to get it done by Labor Day so it'll come out next year, I hope around President's Day. So Okay, you're locked in. Fingers That's crossed. It. I, it's, 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 it's coming along. I like where I am right now. Uh, so, but that's, that's where we're going. All right, James, this has been fascinating. We really appreciate you taking the time to join us. We hope you had a good time on American POTUS. Oh, I did. Believe me. Thank you so much for having me. Right, it's thanks, been fun. James. Martin Van Buren had a huge impact on his times, but is largely unknown to many of us today. That's one reason Scott and I are so passionate about American POTUS. Each president lingers in our society, their influence felt in different but real ways. By increasing our knowledge of these leaders, we think it helps us better understand not just our history, but the issues of today. The story of Martin Van Buren is a great example. We live in a nation with two main political parties. Every time we say we are a Democrat or a Republican, or complain about either one, we're taking part in a system in large part initiated by Van Buren. President Van Buren also faced economic issues so severe that they ensured he only served one term. Those issues are still around in various ways today. How do we best manage the nation's money supply? What limits should we have on a reliance on foreign credit? We believe that every time we learn something about a president and his times, it makes us better equipped to meet the challenges of ours. Thanks for listening to this episode of the American POTUS Podcast. We'd like to thank author and historian James Bradley for joining us on this episode about Martin Van Buren. More information on all of his work can be found on AmericanPOTUS.org. And we would like to thank all of you that have made a tax-deductible financial contribution to support this podcast. In addition to this show, your generosity helps us develop new groundbreaking podcast shows and revolutionary outreach programs offering clarity and perspective to today's political conversations. If you'd like to contribute, it's easy. Simply visit AmericanPOTUS.org. We appreciate your help. American POTUS is produced by American History Studios, graphic design by Prowler Design, and original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. Finally, it's our presidential last word from Martin Van Buren, quote, as to the presidency, the two happiest days of my life were those of my entrance upon the office and my surrender of it. <laughs>